0: this morning we're going to be back in Genesis we're going to be in Genesis chapter 19 as we pick back up on a part of the story that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks uh, we're, we saw last time we met uh, Abraham is met by these three men that he recognizes to be angels actually one of these men is uh, what I believe is jesus christ pre incarnate it is uh, God the Son come to meet with abraham and and the other two men are angels that come and meet with Abraham and Abraham, if you remember, puts on this great feast for them. he kills a calf and he uh, he um, prepares huge amounts of bread and and water and he washes their feet and and he Finds out from these messengers that his wife is to have a child at this season next year, and it, you remember if you remember the story, Sarah laughs uh, in the tent. She laughs because she's already past the age of childbearing, and not just that, but she uh, has always been barren, and so she laughs at that. But God knows that she laughed. In fact, she knew He knew what she thought. ...to herself and reveals that he did. And and the main theme of that story that we talked about last time was that nothing is impossible for God. And that is reassuring to us because our salvation is not impossible for God. Even though we might look at our own works and we might look at our own heart and say there is no way that God could save us, yet nothing is impossible for God. And so we come to the other side of that story, and really you could say that the theme of nothing being impossible for God really carries over into Genesis chapter uh, 19, but the theme takes a a very difficult turn, and I do want to offer kind of a disclaimer of sorts today because what we are going to talk about today is a very heavy subject, and it is something that is... Is completely unavoidable. We're going to talk about some very sensitive issues uh, regarding what goes on in chapter nineteen. I will do my very best to be decent and careful about what I say pertaining to these uh, sub this subject. But we have to deal with God's scripture as it comes to us, and so I'm not going to back down from that. In fact. Uh, where' uh, one of the points that I want to make is just how badly people have backed away from the truth of scripture in our day, and so I want to offer that warning beforehand, like i said i 'll do my best to to uh, be as as uh, uh, what 's the word i 'm looking for as as uh, decent as possible, I guess, but what we are dealing with is a very heavy And difficult subject. So just keep that in mind as we go through this. Uh, But as you know, in our day uh, preachers deal with a good number of complaints from particularly the older generation that they don't preach enough fire and brimstone sermons. And well, this morning I can't help but preach a fire and brimstone sermon because the term fire, fire and brimstone comes from the passage that we are dealing with today. And uh, the concern that many, particularly in older generations, express is a genuine concern because many preachers do avoid preaching sermons uh, related to hell and judgment. And I believe that there are two reasons uh, that we typically, preachers typically avoid Preaching These fire and brimstone sermons one reason that preachers avoid this subject is because uh, we at, in the Christian church particularly in America have focused for so long on the love of God that we no longer have the capacity to understand God's other attributes. So we say things, preachers you will hear often say things like, God never sends anyone to hell. They choose to go there by their own uh, acts and their own choice. And so we take the responsibility and the, the act of judgment away from God and we put it on the people themselves and say, you know, God doesn't intend to do anybody any harm and he doesn't intend to punish anybody or send anybody to hell. That's their own choice. Well, the question then that comes up, why did he make hell then? You know, it's God that made hell. So why did he do it if he doesn't want to send anyone there? But the Bible is replete with God's judgment on sin. And we have to find uh, we have to deal with it. And we find here, particularly in this story that we're going to read, a a, um, specific case of God's judgment. Another reason that I think preachers dodge the discussion on the judgment of God is because our society in general hates the idea of judgment and consequences for actions. We have done everything that we can to get rid of the idea of sin. We call it a behavioral issue or a chemical imbalance or a psychological disorder or an addiction, but we refuse to call sin what it is. But brothers and sisters, the Bible teaches us that judgment and the wrath of God are very real and present in this world. God is not some passive judge who just gives us the results of our desires, but he actively judges us and gives us what we deserve. In our passage today, we're going to witness a prototype for all other judgment in the Bible. The judgment of God that came ultimately on Israel for their disobedience is compared in the Bible to Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment that God planned for the nations that persecuted Israel was compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. Even the final judgment is compared to the judgment of these two cities. In studying this passage today, I want us to see three things. First of all, I want us to see the mediation and secondly, the compromise and then lastly, the judgment. And so what I want to do is let's read uh, Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 14, and then we'll skip down and read verses 23 through 29, and then I'll pray and we'll look at these three things today. Genesis chapter 19, verse starting in verse 1, God's word says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, uh, they said, "No, we will spend the night in the town square." But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people in all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, "Where are the men who came to you tonight?" Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do not uh, do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house. Both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, Who were in who were to marry his daughters up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons in law to be jesting. And then if you'll skip down to verse twenty-three, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulphur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and, uh, and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of sulfur, uh, of a furnace. So it, was that, so it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do come to this text with a heavy heart because we know that judgment is real. We know that your ultimate destiny for this world is a world of judgment and condemnation because of the sin of Adam and because of our own sin. But yet, Lord, we know that there is redemption and that there is a new heaven and a new earth that is coming. And as we study this text and know the the prototype of all judgment that is to come, Lord, may we be uh, uh, reminded of the severity of our sin. But may we also be reminded of the mediator who now stands before you pleading our case and and asking for mercy on those who do not know you. Father, may we trust in Christ and trust in his forgiveness that he has for us through his blood and through his resurrection. Father, bless us now as we study. May we be drawn to you through this, the truths of this passage. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. The first thing that I want you to see in this passage is actually not something that we read, and that is this idea of mediation. Uh, Just to explain, if you look back at Genesis chapter 18, verses 22 through 33, you see this story in which Abraham, after he is eaten with the Lord, he he goes out with the Lord to take them on their way. And as he's going, the Lord decides to tell Abraham what he's about to do. And so he tells Abraham that he's going down to the cities of the valley to judge them because a great outcry has come up from those cities, from all the people who are being tormented and uh, violated and all of that. It, they've, it's come up to him that these cities are committing this great sin against their fellow men. Uh, men. And so uh, God is going down. He's sending these angels down to these cities to judge them for what they're doing. And so he tells Abraham that. Well, Abraham realizes That there's one person that he loves very dearly that is also in one of these cities. And so he asked in verse 23, are you going to sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham is thinking of his nephew, Lot, who lives in Sodom. And he knows the story of Noah. You remember the story of Noah and how God says he's going to judge the whole earth. And yet he decides to save righteous Noah and his family from this judgment that is to come. And Abraham knows that God is a merciful and just God. And so Abraham famously makes this bargain with God and you remember the story he starts with 50 men and he says Lord if there if you go down there and you find that there are 50 righteous men in Sodom will you judge the will you still destroy it or will you save the city because of these 50 righteous men and God says no I won't destroy the city if there are 50 righteous men and, and Abraham haggles with God and gets down to 10 righteous men he says Lord if there are 10 righteous men Will you still spare the city? And God promises that even if there are just 10 righteous men, he will spare Sodom. Now, I want you to see in this uh, something that will be important later, something that Abraham is doing here. Abraham is mediating for Lot. He knows that Lot is living in the midst of sin. He knows that Lot has turned away from the promises of God and chosen to live by sight and not by faith. But he still pleads for grace for Lot. We find this same concept of mediation throughout the Old and the New Testaments. If you think about Moses, when Moses goes before Pharaoh, he represents all of Israel before Pharaoh. And he pleads with Pharaoh that he will release the people of Israel. You think about in Exodus chapter 32, how Moses goes before God and pleads for Israel because God's anger is burning white hot with Israel because they had violated the first commandment, even while Moses was on the mountaintop receiving those commandments. And so God, uh, Moses mediates with God and reminds God of his promises in the New Testament, we find the fulfillment of this need for a mediator in the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy two five says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. What Abraham does here foreshadows what Christ would do for us as our high priest. Right now, Christ is standing before the Father in heaven, pleading for mercy for all of those who have believed in him. I, I hear people wonder... And, and marvel at the fact that even with all of our sins in the United States of America, even with our uh, degradation and our acceptance of sinful lifestyles, even with our uh, acceptance of abortion, even with the continued depravity that we spiral into in our country, we marvel that God has not judged our country yet. And I I believe that the reason that God withholds his anger towards our country and many other countries is because God, uh, Jesus Christ, is pleading right now for his people. Because God's people are still here in this United States of America and God spares us because of his mercy for his people, because Jesus Christ pleads, mediates for us, the second thing that we see from this passage is the compromise. If you notice in verses one through eleven the two angels go down to the city of Sodom and they come to the gate and it says that Lot comes out to meet them and he asks them to join him for dinner. Now, I want you to notice in verse one it says that Lot was sitting at the gate now we have Uh, We see in this a terrible progression in Lot's life. First, we talked about this back in chapter 13, that Lot separated from Abraham because he looked towards Sodom and he saw the beauty of the Jordan River Valley and he effectively lusted after it. You remember, we said that he was living by sight instead of by faith. And he decided to go in the direction of Sodom because of that. So we first see that he moves towards Sodom. And the next time we see him in chapter 14, he is living near Sodom. And now when we find him, he's living in Sodom. And not only is he living in Sodom, but he is part of the government. In those days, you might know that a city was not just a place where commerce happened, but it was a place of protection. And so they would build a wall around every city that they built, and they would have one gate where people would enter and exit and the magistrates of the city, the mayor and the city council, they would sit at the gate of the city and they would do business, they would do government, they would pass laws and they would make judgments and as people came, they would ask for their credentials and figure out who they were and whether they could come into the city or not. And so many times in the Old Testament, when you find that someone is sitting at the gate, it's not because they didn't have a job and they just sat around the gate all the time, but rather, it, was, it meant that they were part of the government of the city. And so Lot has moved from being a herdsman in the land of Canaan all the way into the city of Sodom. And not just that, but now he is a full-fledged member of their society, sitting on the city council, so to speak, working within the government. I don't know if Lot knows that these men are angels, or if he just judges that they're holy men, but for whatever reason, he comes to them and he implores them to come with them, with him, and we get this sense that Lot knows what this what this town does at night because when the angels insist that they're going to sit, they're going to stay in the town square tonight, he begs them. In fact, it's almost the language there is almost like he forces them to come to his house and stay with him for the night. Lot sets them up in the house and he gives them a feast of unleavened bread in their honor. But then notice verse four. This terrible scene begins to develop. And I want you to feel the gravity of the situation. Now, many people today in an effort to deny the fact that the Bible speaks harshly against homosexuality Try all sorts of tricks with this particular story to make what these men are about to do something that it is not. But what the text clearly says is this. Sometime between supper and bedtime, every male of the city, notice it says both young and old, come and surround Lot's house. Now I want you to notice that term, or two terms here. First of all, it says young and old. Now, the word young there literally means babes. So this is meant to include children. So all of the males, young and old, and not just that, but it uses this phrase, all the people to the last man, okay? Now, in the Bible, sometimes the word all doesn't mean all. For example, in the New Testament, um, it says that all of Judea was coming out to be baptized by John. Now it didn't, in that sense, it doesn't mean that every last person in Judea came and got baptized by John the Baptist. So sometimes, and we use that word um, sometimes, we might say all of Pineapple came out for the Hunter's Appreciation event. Well, that may, not, may or may not be true. It's meant to say pretty much everybody was here. Right. I didn't count everybody, but it was a lot of folks is what it's meant. But Moses is very intentional in the words that he uses here as he records this event to say that this was every last male in the town. And notice now why they are there in verse five. It says they call out Lot to bring out the two visitors so that they might know them. Now, the word know there means to know intimately. It is used in Genesis 4 when it says, And Adam knew his wife Eve, and she bore a son. In other words, the men of the town, from the smallest to the greatest, have surrounded Lot's house in order to commit a terrible homosexual sin with these two visitors. Now, brothers and sisters, don't be fooled by the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Some today will try to say that the real sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was that they didn't show hospitality. It's wrong. And in our day, we try to excuse this because the pressure is on the Christian church to say that something that is a sin is not a sin. But these men were here to commit a violent act against these two men who were guests of a magistrate in the city. And this was a regular practice for the people of Sodom. It had to be because even the little boys were there and involved in it. No doubt these children were abused and they were raised in an environment that uh, where night after night, their fathers and their uncles and their grandfathers to, uh, took them out to participate in these kinds of events. There's a reason today while, uh, why this act today is still in legal, sen- in legal documents called sodomy. These men were given over completely to the lust of their flesh. They were as sinful as they could be, and they were raising their children in the same sin. Romans chapter one, verse twenty-six through twenty-seven says that acts like this are evidence of the fact that you have gone as far as you can go away from God in your rebellion. Romans says, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable pass- dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So now here is where the compromise comes in. Notice in verse 6 and 7, It says that Lot went out and stood the men down and he implored them not to do this wicked thing. And then Lot himself, after telling the men that what they were doing was wicked, offers a compromise that is equally as wicked. Lot has been so badly affected by the culture in which he lives that he is willing to take his own daughters and give them to this ravenous crowd as a compromise. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 says that God rescued righteous Lot greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So Peter says that Lot tormented his soul by being involved with the sinful, uh, sinfulness of the city of Sodom. Lot is the quintessential man of sight. He gave up the promise of God for what he saw in the valley of the Jordan River. He gave up the life he knew as a herdsman to live within the protection of the city of Sodom. He gave up his godly influence by becoming a councilman for the city. And now he is willing to throw away his whole family so that he might compromise with the men of the city finally we find the judgment in verses 23 through 29 now in the verses that we skipped over we find out that the angels rescue lot from this mob by striking them with blindness and even then the men still groped at the door trying to find these men the angels have to all but carry Lot and his family out of the town. And even then, Lot doesn't want to obey their commands. In fact, the, uh, Lot asked that he and his family be allowed to go to the town of Zoar. And so the angels allow him to do that, and they wait until he has gotten there, and then they bring about the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. God rains down sulfur and fire, On all the cities of the valley. In fact, it says that it is so bad that it destroys all of the plant life trees, crops, grass, everything is wiped out. Scientists to this day cannot explain what happened to this region. They know that it used to be fertile because they find plant life and things in it, but they cannot explain what happened to it. There is only salt and wasteland there. When Lot's Lot's wife hears the judgment descending on the city, she disobeys God's command, and in her last act of compromise, she turns to look at the city that she loved, and she is turned to a pillar of salt. It wiped out everyone who was involved in the sin of that city. Understand that God's judgment over these cities was final, and it was complete. God brought about perfect judgment. So in closing, I want you to notice verse 27 through 29. It says that Abraham went out early in the morning to look towards the cities of the plain. And when he went out to look, he saw a column of smoke rising up from the cities of the valley. Notice the last sentence in verse 29. It says that God remembered Abraham and sent out Lot. God saved Lot, not because Lot was good or worthy. And that's important to notice because uh, we would think, well, the reason God didn't, uh, God still judged Sodom is because he didn't find 10 righteous men. But Lot was a righteous man. And the implication of Abraham's debate with God was that God would spare the city over any righteous men. And we look at we look at Lot and say Lot had to be righteous and God just got him out because of that. But no, it says in verse 29 that God delivered Lot because of Abraham. He was a part of Abraham's family a part of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. God spared Lot because he was in the covenant, not because he was righteous morally. We already see from the text that he was not righteous morally. Brothers and sisters, the only way that you can be saved from the wrath of God that is to come on the whole world is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your mediator and your Savior. The only reason that judgment does not come on all of us is because just like Abraham did with Lot, Jesus pleads for our souls before God and God rescues us from the judgment that he has in store for the world. Understand that if you are outside of the promises of God, outside of the family of God, then you will not be spared. And the only way to be a part of the family of God is by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. So today we come to the Lord's Supper. And even with the, the thought of judgment on our minds, yet this story that is laid out before us in the Lord's Supper is a picture of that very thing, deliverance through judgment. Remember, the reason Jesus is, is having the Lord's Supper to start with on the, on the day before His crucifixion is because they are observing the Passover. You remember the story of Passover? God tells the Israelites that they are to sacrifice a a lamb and to take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorposts of their house. The reason that is, is that God that very night is going to send the death angel to kill every firstborn child in Egypt. And He will only spare the ones... Who have the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts of their home. So, this supper today is a symbol of the deliverance we have in Jesus Christ because judgment is coming on all the world. So, when we take this bread and this wine, we are reminded of the body and blood of Jesus that covers us. And because He covers us, we have forgiveness, and we have deliverance from the judgment that is compared to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment that will be complete on all the world. Let's pray and then we'll go to our time of Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we come to you today acknowledging that you are just. Lord, we may not always understand why you choose to judge the way you do. But yet you are still just in what you do. So, Father, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us for taking our sins lightly. Forgive us for being like Lot so often and compromising with this world. Father, may we instead trust in you and know that you have deliverance for us through your son, Jesus Christ, that he mediates for us before you and that because he mediates before us uh, before you, we have deliverance and new life in him. Father, bless us as we go to this time of uh, communion. May we remember the body and the blood that was given for us, and may we, through that remembrance, be changed and leave here ready to serve you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.